Good morning to all of you. Doesn't it look beautiful in here? Yeah, you know, you can thank Michelle Miller and a bunch of hillsiders who came out here last week and powered on by pizza, they decorated this place. Give them a hand. Don't you appreciate their, their ministry? Yeah. Well, I welcome you uh, again to the very first Sunday of Advent. And, you know, in his famous song, one that we will all probably hear about a thousand times by the time December 21st comes, Andy Williams croons, but Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. Look at that smile, huh? (laughs) The most wonderful time of the year because there will be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow, among other delights, kind of corny, but also really true. You know, the Christmas season, even with the pressures that come with it, the pressures involved in shopping and hosting, is full of wonderful ornaments if we open our eyes to them. Uh, Light displays, great movies that we only watch once a year like It's a Wonderful Life, and eggnog lattes. But I heard a no men over here, yeah. But For Christians like us, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year preeminently because of Jesus, the Son of God who came to us, entering time and space, and then through his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension, flipped the directional arrow of the world. And once headed for ruin, since Jesus is coming at Christmas, which we're beginning to celebrate today, the creation is now headed for a complete refurbishment, however bleak things may look in the present with war and shootings and other horribles. You see, since Christmas, new creation is coming, and that's something that we can celebrate and take peace in. What's this year's Advent series all about? I want to explain with a story. When I was a kid, there was a a concept in the minds of the kids on my neighborhood court, Plaza Montez, San Jose, and the concept was of a big present Christmas. And I remember actually having conversations about it with Eric and Kirsten and Tina, the other kids on my court. And a, a big present Christmas was one in which you received a present that was greater or more extravagant than usual. Now, i got to be honest, for my twin brother Darren and me, most Christmases were actually big present Christmases because my parents were so generous with us. You now see the damage that indulgence did right in front of you. But there was one Christmas that particularly sticks out in my mind as a big present Christmas. When I was in sixth grade, waiting under the tree for me was a sleek blue 10-speed bike. It was a Centurion Click. That was the name of the model. And my brother Darren got one too. And for maybe Six months, I had longed for one of these bicycles. My older cousin, Sean, had gotten a Centurion 10-speed some months before, and I was absolutely 
captivated by this just exquisite aluminum two-wheeled wonder. You know, just the, 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 the gear shifts and the hand brakes and the, the quick-release front wheel. And anyway, that Christmas morning, uh, when I was finally allowed to come out, and about that, I don't know if it's the same thing in your family, we were not allowed to emerge from our rooms until my parents were up and the coffee was brewed and the cameras were going and this and that. Just pure torture having to wait for them. You see what I suffered as a child. Anyway, when I, when I entered the living room and saw that bicycle, just this you know, metallic paint sparkling in the firelight, I was out of my mind with joy. And I still feel the exhilaration. It has not worn off. And had it been a sports car in the driveway, like you see in those ridiculous commercials right around now with a big red bow on the top, I would not have been more excited than I was to have gotten this bike. That was a big present Christmas for sure. And maybe you have a similar memory. At least I really hope that you do. But here's the point. For us, for Christians... Every single Christmas is a big present Christmas. And that's not just high, you could say, kind of holly jolly rhetoric, the kind of thing that a preacher might say. It's reality. And this is because every Christmas we are reminded of four humongous gifts that we have received in Christ. And it's these four distinct Christmas presents that we are going to be unwrapping and savoring during this whole Advent series all the way up through Christmas Eve. Well, where does Scripture tell us about these four huge Christmas presents? The book of Galatians, of course. Exactly what you would think. That's right. It's not Matthew and Luke alone that contain the Christmas story. Galatians does too. Let me read this unexpected Christmas passage to you. This is Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and these four verses will be the focus of our Advent series. It goes this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. There it is, Christmas. Born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you're children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is God's word for us. Again, in these four verses from Galatians, we've got our four big presents. The first one being freedom. And we get that from verse 5 in the word redeem. To really understand this present, we actually have to remind ourselves of the Galatians' backstory. Paul shared the good news of Jesus as the saving king with the Galatians, people who were living in southern Turkey, during his first big missionary journey. And the Galatians heard this news about Jesus. They believed it, and they were immediately changed by it, all of a sudden experiencing brand new power uh, for their lives of faith. And these Gentiles, meaning they were non-Jews, were absolutely delighted, absolutely ecstatic to be included in the people of God, to to have their consciences washed clean of all sin, and to be called to a great purpose. Well, sometime after their baptism, 
Some Christians arrive from Jerusalem saying to these new Christians that faith in Jesus is not enough. And they say that rather to be justified, which is actually somewhat of a complex idea in the New Testament with past, present, and future dimensions, but for now just think being declared right in the sight of God, these visitors declared that to be justified Christians also needed to begin to observe the Mosaic law. In other words, they needed to be circumcised and to begin keeping kosher. So again, these folks, these visitors, sometimes called agitators, you might see if you work out of a study Bible, they said that that right standing before God required the Messiah, absolutely required Jesus, but it also required the Mosaic law. They were saying it's Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Well, when Paul hears this, Paul is appalled, you could say. And for him, thank you, this is a (laughs) catastrophic error. In response to this, he fires off this sharp letter, which is our book of Galatians, and he urges them to do a 180. This is what he says in verse 1-6. He says that, that to add the Mosaic law to faith in Jesus the King, is actually to desert Jesus himself. It's to turn to a totally different gospel. Now, I want you to hear what I'm going to say here. This is really important for understanding, totally critical for understanding the basic character or shape of Christianity. This is important if you're new. This is important if you've been in the church for decades. I want you to catch this. Paul's concern with the Galatians adding the Mosaic law to faith in Jesus was not precisely a faith versus works concern in the sense that we might suppose. And it really is a distortion to understand Paul this way, that his concern here in Galatians and more broadly in his writings was that they were, say, abandoning their new religion of grace where there were no obligations at all, for an old religion of stuff to do. That's not quite it, though a lot of Christians kind of think that's the basic distinction. And you can see it very plainly at the end of Galatians, what will Paul do? Paul will go on to give them lots of stuff to do, joyful, vigorous action to take. That really wasn't his concern. Rather, his concern was this, that by taking on the Mosaic law, trying to add it on top of faith in Jesus the King, his concern was that the Galatians were actually going back in time. And we get a sense of this chronological concern that he has in chapter 1, verse 4, in which Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one, you can find this in your notes, as the one who gave himself for our sins. And get this, why? to deliver us from the present evil age. The implication being Jesus has ushered in a brand new stage of history. You see, Paul understood Messiah Jesus not so much as replacing one religion with another religion, but Paul understood Jesus as ushering in a new phase the climactic phase, the most glorious phase of God's single salvation plan 
a plan which he had from the beginning to rescue the whole world through a special rescuing family, a plan in which the Jewish law would play a very important part, a dignified part, but ultimately a temporary part, a part that has now been eclipsed as the great salvation story has moved decisively forward in Jesus through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father in power. Well, what's this all come down to? What is this freedom then, which is the first big present of Christmas? Most basically, it's freedom from a mosaic law life. Now, unlike, say, a beautiful new Centurion 10-speed bicycle, the utility of this first present, freedom from a mosaic law life, might be a little hard to appreciate at first glance. After all, not many Christians today are tempted to supplement faith in Jesus with avoiding pork or observing the Feast of Booths. So what is this freedom? What exactly is this present, and what does it mean for us today? It actually requires some thought, giving it some careful thought. You see, there's a temptation to skip over it and to get right to more obvious dimensions of Christian freedom. After all, faith in Christ frees us from all sorts of different kinds of bondages. They're all here. For instance, from the prison of guilt. In Christ, we are forgiven of all of our greatest failures. We are cleared of charges. We are washed. We're sanctified, and we're made new. That's part of our freedom. Faith in Christ frees us from the prison of unforgiveness. As people who have been forgiven, we have all sorts of capacity to extend forgiveness lavishly to others and not be eaten up by resentments in past hurts. Faith in Christ frees us from the prison of worry. As people who now know the Creator God, not just as the transcendent one, but as Father who loves us, we're no longer worried about how our basic needs will be met. In fact, we're no longer really worried about anything because Abba has it all under control. Faith in Christ frees us from the prison of futile pursuits. As people who have been crowned with honor in Jesus, we are freed from the pressure of constantly trying to boost our own status by just getting a whole bunch of stuff or a bigger house or a better car or trying to fish for likes on Instagram. We're totally free from it. We're free to give our lives to what counts, relationships and service. And finally, faith in Christ frees us from the prison of the fear of death. And even though contrary to popular opinion, Christianity is not mainly about going to heaven when we die. And even what we mean by heaven is different from what many people imagine. Christianity certainly holds out tremendous hope for life after the grave. In fact, in Christ, none of us has to fear death. None of us has to fear our own demise because we know that because Jesus passed through death and out the other side into new embodied life in a real body, that's our hope too. So we never have to fear death. But here in Galatians 4, Paul zeroes in on one particular dimension of that freedom. Again, the freedom from a mosaic law life, or more broadly, freedom from any kind of law life. So before jumping to those other areas of freedom, which are a little more accessible to us, we should make sure we understand the specific freedom he has in mind in Galatians. What's he saying right here? And again, it's freedom 
from a law life. What then's a law life from which we are freed? Here's how I would define it. A life in which our spirituality is a static system, whether mosaic or otherwise. Why is this so good? Why is freedom from a law life so good? Why is this a big present? Why is this something that we should celebrate every day? This week, this month, forever. To begin with, Paul describes the law-based life as one of slavery. Look at your notes. Look at the verses that frame our passage. First, verse three. Listen to what Paul says here. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. It's right before our passage. And now verses eight and nine, right after our passage. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And what do we get from that? For Paul, a law life was a life of slavery. Now, again, does this mean that he viewed the Mosaic law as something bad? No, not at all. To the contrary, Paul considered the Mosaic law to be something good, holy, righteous. That's Romans 7, 12. Rather, the problem with the Mosaic law was actually something in human beings, something in us that reared its ugly head every time we tried to follow the law, the power of sin, which has a strange way of corrupting all of our attempts at law observance and turning it into something kind of unsavory, something other than a truly beautiful and holy and compassionate, God-pleasing life. But here's the thing. We don't have to go too far down that road to know why a mosaic law life or a law life of any kind is slavery. And here's the reason. It's because whatever that system, whatever that pattern, it's not Jesus, the living Lord. Any pattern of spiritual life besides Jesus as the living Lord, as the pattern of life, as the power for life, as the guiding presence of life, is slavery by comparison. And it's been said by a prominent New Testament scholar, a guy from Cambridge named John Riches. He says this, Galatians presents us with one of the sharpest statements of the giftedness of Christian existence. And Christian existence is a gift for a lot of reasons, some of which we just rattled off. But the main one is this. It offers the opportunity to be guided, nourished, sustained, led, sometimes corrected, held, cherished by the living Lord himself. And think about how much better to have as the power and the pattern in the guiding presence in life of Jesus, the living Lord, 
rather than any static system. I mean, think for a moment of how often systems fail us and come up short. I thought about this recently when I was trying to make a return on Amazon. And I like Amazon a lot. This is not a criticism of the company that delivers 48 peach K-cups to me in 48 hours. It's amazing. And speaking of Amazon's fast delivery for a moment, I ordered a book last week, something I need for the January and February series. They gave me the option of having it delivered the next day in the middle of the night between 2 and 5 a.m. Have they given you that opportunity? I thought that is absolutely absurd. Delivering a book at 3 in the morning? And then I thought, why not? And I clicked it. And the next morning at 5.30, I read that book with my Pete's coffee, and it was fantastic. But again, I had to make a return. Now, I've made many returns to Amazon. I've never had a problem, but this time what I needed to make the situation right was none of the options that the Amazon virtual assistant was offering me. And as I was going around and around with this system, I thought to myself, I need a person And no, Alexa won't do, all right? A static system won't work. And I had the same thought fairly recently after visiting the doctor. Afterwards, I had a question about something the doctor told me to do. And then I found myself in this My Doctor Online abyss of no capacity to communicate with anyone who could help me. And I thought, again, I need a person. That's the point. You know, it's a person. It's a person, a living person that we have in Jesus the Messiah. And that's what freedom from the law life means. It's not an easy life. In fact, sometimes the person can call us to do some crazy things. But it's the freedom to be intimately related to and joyfully obedient to a person. Jesus the King who's in charge of everything and who loves us. Jesus as the primary pattern, power, and guiding presence in life rather than any kind of mechanical system. Well, how does the living Lord speak to us? Primarily through our prayerful and our communal meditation on his living word. And that's why here at Hillside, group life is so essential Being together with other believers and the practice of exploration is so important within group life. That's why. It's really one of the main ways that we get to use this remarkable Christmas present of freedom in exploration as a group, shoulder to shoulder, after connection, talking with each other and getting caught up on each other's lives and after reflection where we look into God's word together and we consider it on its own terms, we do exploration, which means this, we close the Bibles And then shoulder to shoulder, as brothers and sisters, as as servants of the king, we ask each other, how do you sense the living Lord is calling you to follow him? 
And as we do that in faith, we expect the living Lord to guide us, to nudge us in this direction or that direction, and especially to give us a new sense of who and how to love, because it's love, real love, real grace and truth love, not my truth or your truth, but the truth love that Jesus, the living Lord, is always calling us to. Paul says as much one chapter later in Galatians 5, 6, when he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You know, sometimes when we begin to talk about living by faith in Jesus, living by the pattern of his faithfulness, living by the power and pattern of his spirit, instead of a static system of some kind, sometimes we can get a little bit nervous. And we wonder, where exactly could this life lead, and what could it be used to justify? Well, Paul gives us a very powerful check. One, later, one chapter later in Galatians, Paul basically says this. If we want to know whether having Messiah Jesus as power, pattern, And guiding presence of life, rather than some rules package, is leading us in the right direction. Just look at the fruit that it produces and ask, is it making us more joyful? Is it making us more peaceful? Is it making us more patient? Is it making us more kind? Is it making us more good? Is it making us more faithful to our commitments Is it making us more gentle? Is it making us more self-controlled? Is it making us more involved with the family of God, which is what all those qualities presuppose? In other words, is it making us more like Jesus himself who brought love and loyalty and truth together like nobody who's ever lived. Can I share this with you? I love this present. Some ways it's kind of the hardest to get our hands on of the four that we're going to be talking about, but I love this one the most. And the reason is so much of the pressure I live under grows from failure to live up to some alien law. I'm learning, though, that more and more in reality, my only obligations are to the commands of my king. The only ones. I can let go of all those other laws, and I can focus on the king who loves me and who died for me and who's taken up residence in me and now leads me by his spirit, and I can let go of everything else. And when I get overwhelmed, I'm invited to take a spin on my freedom bike. To come into the presence of the king, again, who died for me, who forgave me and washed me clean, took up residence in me, calls me son, and child, and I can say, I'm totally overwhelmed. (laughs) Help me, 
what should I do? And when I do, I discover that there is a gap between the self-defined law that I'm living under, generally to be something I'm not, generally to try to make everyone happy, and the easy yoke of his leadership. You know, the gift of freedom, freedom from a law life, the freedom to make Jesus alone, the pattern, the power, the guiding presence of life is an extraordinary gift. How do we live it? How do we use this freedom? You know, freedom is a road bike. How do we ride it? Like so much in the Christian life, like almost everything in the Christian life, it starts with new ways of praying. So here's a prayer. Dear King Jesus, thank you for transferring me from the realm of the law to the realm of your personal and tender lordship. Give me a clear picture of what you want from me today, especially who and how to love. Give me peace in releasing everything else. Amen and amen. Thank you.